Okay, welcome to Formation. Uh, as always, a little bit different than our regular Sunday morning um, situation. And uh, this year we have been uh, exploring some stuff loosely under the idea of so now what, which is really as we've been, as a church community, I think, um, and I think people in the 21st century in general working through what to do with some of the, shh, <laughs> what to do with some of the big ideas of, of Christian faith and how we understand them in new ways and in, in light of, um, I think, an honest conversation about some of the things that need unpacking, some things that need pulling apart and then putting back together again. So what we're trying to talk about at the moment is how do we, how does we re-engage with the Bible um, in a way that maybe doesn't just see it as this book that floated down from the sky at some point in history, you know, written by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, and that can be sort of quoted uh, to fix any and every problem that we might have. You know, just whip out your favourite sort of Bible verse, and it'll it'll solve everything. Um, instead, engaging it kind of on its own terms and asking what's what's going on in this book, this collection of books that are written over a long period of time. How do we re-engage in it in healthy, useful, meaningful, interesting ways? And that can be a curious and um, interesting path to walk because it's not necessarily as straightforward as just being like, well, the Bible says, and then, and then quote your favorite verse. Um, it means you sort of dive into the mystery of it a little bit. And so what we've been doing over the last few weeks is we talked um, at the, in the, our first session about how rather than being this instruction manual, really what the Bible is, is this wisdom tradition. It's a history of people wrestling with God. It's our sacred text of people who have uh, for hundreds or even over, uh, well, over a period of hundreds and hundreds of years and thousands of years ago, uh, wrestling with these big ideas about God, about the human experience uh, that we can engage with and learn a lot from and find God uh, revealed to us in the story. And as Christians, obviously, that centers particularly around the story of Jesus. Um, and we also talked a little bit about uh, how we might read the Bible from a mystical perspective. So Greg and I had a conversation. If you were, who was here for that one? Was that last time? It was that, yeah. Um, around some ways of seeing the text as one in which this view of God kind of is evolving as people, and, and the text as being this narration of people's experience, uh, and that in some way our task is to also experience something uh, and to see beyond just the literal goings-on. Uh, and see something else, something mysterious, something beautiful that we might be invited into. Um, what we're going to talk about tonight is violence. Uh, <laughs> welcome. Um, we're going to talk about violence in the Bible. If you've ever read your Bible, and I, I'm aware that uh, for some people that, you know, have probably not actually necessarily read a lot of it. I think I know a lot of people who are really good at waving it around um, or certainly were um, 
not necessarily a lot of time spent reading <laughs> or engaging with it, but I used, to, I used to like smelling it and holding it. I didn't quite know how to read it though. But if you do read your Bible, and if you start at the beginning, uh, it's not too long before you start bumping into some pretty interesting, uh, violent stories. So we talked a little bit, I, uh, Greg and I did about, well, he asked me some curious question about the Adam and Eve story. Uh, we talked a bit about, uh, and a couple of times ago, you know, some of those mythological narratives like Adam and Eve and so on. But after Adam and Eve, uh, Cain and Abel is really the next story that rolls out. Anyone familiar with Cain and Abel's story? What happens? One kills the other, yes. Famous story. Uh, they both offer sacrifices and for some reason um, Abel's is a good one and Cain's isn't and Cain gets jealous and kills his brother. And so we run into the spilling of blood pretty quickly. Now at that point in time, it's kind of easy to deal with because this is clearly you know who the good person and who the not good person is in that story. Abel's the good guy who offered the good sacrifice of his crops and so on. Cain is obviously the bad guy because he does the killing. Yeah, pretty kind of. If we if we just read it on that sense, we're like, who's the good guys and the and the bad guys, or the or, or whatever it might be, if that's the way we want to read it. Cain's clearly the bad guy, and Abel's kind of the good one who gets murdered, and so there's consequences for for Cain, the bad character. So that's kind of you know that that's straightforward. But as the the story continues, things do get a little bit more complex, a little bit more complicated when it comes to violence in the Bible. Um, so, you know, the first 11 chapters are a lot of spiraling problems. Uh, but then we have people like the patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Anyone heard of them? Yes. Uh, often in the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know. Um, and these, seem, these are interesting ancient figures. But they've got, uh, especially Abraham and Jacob. Isaac actually comes out of the story pretty well, apart from nearly getting killed by his father uh, out of devotion to the Lord uh, when he's 12. Um, Isaac comes out of the story all pretty well. Abraham, at one point, uh, has to force a, well, doesn't have to, chooses to uh, conspire with his wife to um, take a young servant and to try and force her to have his, well, does, to have his child. Um and he's kind of our ancient hero of the faith, right? Uh, one of them, Abraham, the father of faith. Father Abraham has many sons. I have one of them and so are you. Let's just praise the Lord, right arm. Um, but he, you know, and he also tries to, you know, pass his wife off as his sister um, when he's going through Egypt because he's a bit worried that people are going to fall in love with his sister, uh, with his wife, sorry. And, um, and probably then, Try and get him out of the way so that they, because she apparently she's very beautiful. So he's worried they're going to threaten his life to get to his wife. So he says, No, she's not my wife, she's my sister. So she gets taken by Pharaoh for a while. No sense of agency for Sarah in this story, is there? Um, in exchange, Abraham gets given all sorts of stuff because he's her older brother, apparently, who can give her to the Pharaoh. So he gets given livestock and servants. And also, and this is the origins of Abraham's great wealth, which we often look upon as the great blessing of our 
of Yahweh, uh, which comes about initially, the big surge of his initial wealth comes from him um, selling his wife to Pharaoh, uh, who... So, uh, now, that's not, I'm not saying that's all that Abraham does in his life, but <laughs> if any of you are like, oh man, at least I thought that guy might be all right. Uh, you know, this is, this is um, if you read the story, and I, I think I, growing up, I read it with kind of rose-tinted glasses perhaps, or I don't know what kind of glasses, obviously, literally glasses, but also um, somehow I glossed over all of that stuff because in my mind, he's a, he's a great man, so therefore... Just don't pay attention to the details of the story. Oh, I, I mean, it was an honest thing, honest mistake. You know, we'd all be tempted to, to do that, wouldn't we? Uh, <laughs> um, I think, you know, and, and it wasn't so bad, really. That's the kind of the, the narrative and a lot of the Christian reading of some of these stories. Uh, and in the end, Pharaoh gets upset because uh, the way the story goes is that God intervenes and Pharaoh starts running into all sorts of problems and suddenly he realises it's because... Um, God wants Abraham and Sarah to actually be together and Ab- Abraham's gone selling his wife off as his sister. So Pharaoh gets very upset and sends them all out, kicks them out, and off they go with all their... He gets Sarah back, but he gets to keep all his wealth. <sighs> he also takes... Um, then, because he can't have children with with Sarah for quite some time, even though they believe that's the promise. He takes the servant into his bed and she has to have his child. Um, Hagar, who has Ishmael. And then she gets sent packing as well. So, because in the end, uh, every, you know, there's a bit of jealousy in the house. and this is a rough start to the story of God's redemptive plan for the world and for humankind. <laughs> um, but what we're dealing here, and I think we have to, I, I feel like we have to read these texts honestly and, 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 and see what's really going on in them to be actually able to be confronted by it. And hopefully as we go along tonight, we'll see some helpful ways to read these stories so it's not just depressing. Um, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Jacob actually does a similar thing. He also... Um, yeah, similar. There's a similar set of events that go on there. Um, we have the great story of liberation of the of the people of Israel who are now slaves in Egypt. Sometime later, and out they come into the wilderness, and then they enter into the promised land. And then, if you read the book of Joshua, you find going into the promised land is not um, just Easter eggs and iced tea. Um, going to the promised land is is also wiping out some people on the way in, right? Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> oh, I'm looking at your faces and you're like, hmm. um, when <laughs> when I was growing up, the the Jericho that was a good story, um, and then they you know they were they were they, instead of having to go in and fight, they just marched around seven times, blew the trumpets and all the walls came down and everybody died. Hooray! <laughs> um, and I never thought too much more about it other than just like, that seems amazingly, what a wonderful story of how God killed all those people for them. Oh, just the walls fell down, yeah. Nobody inside was hurt. That's right. Um, and so 
So as we're going along in the story, what we find is we keep bumping into violence and we have to wrestle with that violence, I think, if, if we're going to read the Bible. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we've got a few problems at this stage. Just a bit of genocide there in that one. Um, <sighs> Not only have they gone into the promised land to do that, one of the big problems for us is that seems like it's God that's told them to do that. So that's something we really have to think about, don't we? <clears throat> couple more for you. <laughs> uh, we have a character, there's, a, there's one called Jep, Jephthah. Does anyone remember what happens to, with, this, with this guy? No, it's probably, not a, it's probably not a story you tell your children. Um... He wins a great battle on behalf of the Israelites and he's so excited about it that he decides when I, you know, when I get home, I'm so, I'm so thankful to God for being able to win this battle and defeat the enemies that when I get home, I'm going to sacrifice the first thing that walks through that door. Um, <laughs> poor cat. Unfortunately, it's his daughter who walks through the door when he gets home. And... Because he's made this solemn vow to Yahweh, he feels he cannot break that vow. Um, to keep, yeah. That one, that one he chooses to keep. I'm sure there's plenty of other vows he didn't manage to keep along the way. Um, and so he's a bit devastated, but has to follow through, apparently. Uh, he gives her two months to go and... So she goes and hangs with her friends for two months and she says, can I, can I just have a bit of time to go and hang with my friends before you sacrifice me to the Lord? Um, so she does. She has two months to go and do that. Then she comes back and he sacrifices her to Yahweh. Why didn't she run away? Yeah, I mean... This is uh, who we were talking about, Game of Thrones, weren't we? Um, is this literal? <laughs> Did this really happen? I don't know. Well, that's this is the way the story goes. So let's um, let's let's look at we'll look at some ways of interpreting these stories. So certainly the way it's told is that this is a this is a this is an account of, of something that's happened. And a lot of these stories come from the oral traditions of Israel that have been passed down and then get written down and then get handed down. Um. Now, unfortunately, because I like a bit of the old, yeah, Old Testament's a bit like that, isn't it? But in the Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, it does um, list Jephthah as one of the heroes of faith. What does it say? It says, one who through faith conquered kingdoms and ministered justice and gained what was promised. But it doesn't mention his daughter. So, um, right. <laughs> oh, man. It's interesting when you allow yourself to start seeing these stories in the Bible, how many of them you start to see. Um, you know, you even take, <laughs> oh, I don't know if I want to ruin David. I shouldn't ruin David, should I? Um, <laughs> but, you know, David's our archetypal hero in the Old Testament. He's the one who made Israel powerful. Um, he's the kind of the king who, took them to the great heights to which they never really fully ever live up to again. And so they're always talking about how 
maybe one will come who will rule on the throne of David like David, who will rule forever. Um, I mean, this is a part of why they're so confused when Jesus turns up, actually, because what they're expecting is David. And why they get is this Jesus guy who goes around forgiving everybody all the time. Um, but anyway, that's let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, David himself has got uh, all sorts of problems in the way that he treats women, for starters. I mean, most of these ancient men have problems in the way they treat women. So it's not like, in a sense, they stand out for this kind of horrendous behaviour towards women. This is the way the ancient world so often was. And it's it's kind of confronting to see it that way. And we read stories of marriage and we think, oh, that's lovely. But often there's, there's property exchange and, you know, it's 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 not always just um, dancing in meadows together, falling in love uh, in the ancient world. And so David has many wives in the audience. I think he ends up with about 10 or 11 Wives or concubines, or sort of some sort of combination. Uh, one of the famous stories of David was is Bathsheba, right? Who's bathing on the roof, so he sends for her. And I always kind of got that story was always an adultery kind of story, you know, David and Bathsheba and their secret affair. Um, but at no point in the story does it say and Bathsheba wanted to run off with David. It just says he sent for her which as the king, he could do. Uh, and then he gets her husband killed because he's a bit embarrassed about the fact that he's done it. Anyway, he's the man after God's own heart, as the Old Testament says. <laughs> Woo! Just line them up and ruin them all. Yeah. Okay. So what we've got is we've got a lot of violence. And a lot of the violence is, is carried out by our heroes of faith, often the way we're taught to think about them. And a lot of the time the violence seems sanctioned by God. Uh, and sometimes God is the one who, who does the violence directly. And so there are, you know, there's the occasional chasm open up in the ground and swallow thousands of people and then and all their households. Is one of those in the uh, Exodus story <laughs> when Moses is leading the people, right? And he's um, cause now I'm ruining the God character as well. <laughs> this is the, I've done. I'm done with the human heroes. Now I'm just going to um, talk about God for a minute. Uh, Moses has there's a bit of uh, leadership. There's a bit of politics developing in the camp, and um, some other people think that perhaps things could be done a bit differently. And God says, "Well." Moses is my guy. So I'll tell you what, everybody stand back. <laughs> and um, the ground opens up and swallows uh, 3,000 uh, of these uh, rebels and their households. So um, that's a pretty intense response, isn't it? Hmm. So then the question emerges for me, I don't know if it does for you, but the question that emerges here is, well, okay, how do we how do we put this together with this idea that God is love that we seem to hold so dearly in the Christian faith. Um, how do we put this together with the Jesus figure that we talk about? Um, the Jesus who says to love your enemies, to forgive 
over and over and over and over and over again, who says it's not an eye for an eye, turn the other cheek. How do we put Jesus alongside all of this violence in the texts? Is that question a fair one, do you think? Yeah. And in fact, this is not a question just Christians ask. I think this is a question that you'll see come up a lot when Christianity and the Bible are talked about in the public domain, in the public discourse. People say, well, look at this incredible violence. This is, this is what's wrong with religion. Um, yeah. And that's an understandable reaction to a bunch of stories about violence, violent people and a violent God. So, what I want to do is just briefly, how are we going so far? I don't want to just talk depressing stuff for too long, so I've got to make sure we tip over into positive themes. Um, maybe to just describe briefly some ways that Christians do negotiate, or have classically, certainly the ways that I was sort of, uh, have been immersed in in my earlier Christian life. Um, ways of trying to manage these texts and then perhaps why I think they're not that helpful and some other ways we might think about this. Yeah? Um, one way, I don't actually have it written down, but I guess one way is to just not think about it, which is probably what a lot of people do. They're like, you know what? I don't know what to do with that, so... I shall not do anything with it. I'll just um, not read those bits. The other approach might be to say, um, yes, this is what God is like. This is what God's people are like and this is what we should be like too. So that's one way to approach it. So at times within the history of the Christian tradition, there has been plenty of violence shaped by a view of God in the text put together with some political um, power and the church becomes the dispenser of violence. And so if you do some church history, and we did this in a formation session uh, last year sometime. Uh, for those who are, remember talking about Christian empire towards the end of last year, and we kind of traced our way through some of the, the problems within the Christian. It's not all problems, of course, but there are some. Uh, and at times, um, Scripture is then used to essentially endorse this kind of violence against others. So that's one thing to do. I'm not going to suggest that that's a good, good one. I'm going to say that's that's not a good one. Don't do that, please. Secondly, um, one way to, and this is there's a couple of here that are kind of connected. One is to allegorize it, so they become. Um, kind of allegories for battle in general. Um, and this is often put together with kind of a spiritualizing. As a, so um, I have been involved in music and worship type stuff in my life and heard plenty of um, inspirational talks about how, you know, the way they used to send the musicians out in front of the army and just like the musicians went out in front of the army in the Old Testament, so the worshippers and the worship leaders and the Christian musicians go out and um, in some way win the battle. So the battle language kind of gets, gets spiritualized uh, in some kind of way. And so what were literal physical battles in the Old Testament become more spiritual battles of, of some kind in the, in the present day. And um, I think that's one way of trying to 
deal with the text. It doesn't actually say, it doesn't actually help us necessarily negotiate some of the complicated ideas about what do those stories mean about God, but it's one way of reading the stories that gives people meaning for now. And, and often the enemy no longer becomes some bad people out there who we need to kill, but it becomes maybe the, the devil. Maybe it becomes evil forces. Um, often in Christianity, in certain streams of Christianity, you'll just talk hear language about the enemy in general. The enemy did this and the enemy's doing that and the enemy's coming against you and you've got to rise up against the enemy. And that kind of language enables you to use some of that battle imagery quite well. Certainly plenty of battle songs that I used to sing when I was young growing up. Um, it is God who trains my hands for battle. My arms will bend a bow of bronze. Anyone know that one? Yes, good. I thought I was out on my own there for a second. I thought this has gone very badly. Um, you know, he gives me the strength for victory and something or other. Um, or I may never um, march in the infantry, uh, ride in the cavalry or shoot the artillery. I may never fly over the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Um, I went to the enemy's camp. That was a classic. So I went to the enemy's camp and I took back what he stole from me. I remember uh, being, in a, uh, being in a line of people all holding hands and we went to march forward when we were going to the enemy's camp and then march backwards when we took back what he stole from us. Um, which is, it comes from actually one of the stories of David when the enemy, their enemies literally came in and stole a bunch of their stuff and their woman and everything and then they went back and they got their woman back and so on. Once again, sorry, ladies, being thrown around in those stories. Um, <laughs> the thing about those songs is such happy tunes, such merry, such merriment about battle. Uh, the satire, <laughs> you think so? In what in what sense do you see it as satire? Do you mean the actual stories themselves or you mean these songs? Okay. Cool. Interesting. All right. Unintentional satire. I see. Um, now, I think just what's interesting in what's going on there is this attempt to take this battle imagery that if we interpret it violently, does make us a bit uncomfortable. And so there's a spiritualizing of it, spiritualizing of it that I think then in some ways makes it meaningful for people. I can, I can grapple with um, some kind of spiritual battle that these stories then become helpful uh, to me in helping to negotiate in my life. Um, another way of dealing with it is to say, well, after Jesus was the age of grace, so this is often the theological move, before Jesus there was no grace and so just it was people got what they deserved. So if people were out of line, sometimes God would strike them down and so on. Um, and there was a lot of killing and death because that's ultimately what we deserve. But after Jesus is the age of grace and so we're in this period of time where God doesn't do that to us. Um, and that's nice. Because God took it out on Jesus. Um, 
But ultimately, that's still kind of what God is like then, right? Um, which is interesting. I have a podcast um, that I kind of, it's a little side project for me. And I, I did one talking about, I did a few episodes talking about violence in the Bible. And it was interesting, one of the comments that someone left on, um, I've got an Instagram page for it, and someone, someone left a comment on when I did a thing about the flood and some other acts of divine violence in the Bible. And they just said, because I said, oh, that's actually, that's not re- the flood, for example, is not really a children's tale. It's a devastating, traumatic story of just about everybody on earth being wiped out by God. Um, for their sins, and 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 to me, that's that requires some real engagement because that's a, that's a troubling story to me. And they just left a comment, you know, saying, "Well, that's not. I don't think that's scary at all. It's good to recognise that we should, you know, fear a holy God and and watch out because basically, I'm trying to remember the exact phrasing of the comment, but it was God is being merciful to us right now, but things are getting pretty bad in the world. So around the corner, there's going to come a smiting of the great and mighty smiter essentially um, that God's withholding that violence for now but eventually he's going to have enough and it's all going to come flooding back out again excuse the pun there Um, and so that tells us something about a way of seeing God doesn't it that God is in in fact capable of these things so um, these are some ways that Christians have tried to deal with these violent texts. I'm not convinced they're satisfactory. And I'm not convinced that they actually get any sense of congruence with the story of Jesus and the kind of God that we see in Jesus. And one of the big claims of the New Testament is that in Jesus, we really see what God is like. Because Jesus is the Word made flesh, is God with us. Uh, And so in the story of Jesus, we are... Um, we come face to face for the first time with what God is like. God has been in the story all along, but um, the claim of the New Testament authors is that Jesus comes and reveals to us something much more of who God is and what God is like. And so my way of reading scripture has to I'm going to talk a bit more about Jesus in the next formation session as well and how Jesus helps us to read Scripture. Um, but I have to be able to put these things together and I don't. I could be like, well, there's an Old Testament God and there's, then there's Jesus who's the New Testament guy. And, um, but Jesus saw himself in some ways in this continuity of the story. So how do we then make sense of putting the pieces together? So that's what we're going to try and do tonight so that we can then go away and read all of our violent stories and have some sense of how we might approach them. Is that all right? You going okay? How are you? What, what feelings come to the surface as we have this conversation? What, what, what's going through your mind at the moment? Confronting? always just um, haven't wanted to think about it um, just yeah because I haven't been able to reconcile it so it's just actually thinking about it like this is must be the first time I've done this so. yeah anyone else
sort of feel it's a little bit more reassuring because if you, um, dare I say it, read the Quran, it's even more violent in some areas. So, you know, if we can um, get context of the violence in ours, maybe we can recognise the violence in other faiths as well and have better understanding. Um, and uh, that might help everyone in the long run. Certainly we do see in ancient you know, texts like this in general, there is there's violence. And one of the things, you know, we, we might talk about tonight is that we're dealing with a time in the world when largely violence was the norm in terms of the way in which people and groups relate to one another, the way they interpret God or the gods. Um, and sometimes, yeah, I, I find it curious, I think, when Christians um, – try to claim that something like the Quran is violent but Christianity is not or that the Bible is not, um, which sometimes happens, rather than recognising there is in fact violence present in both of those texts that needs to be wrestled with and engaged with. Yeah. Um, whilst you were talking, I was sort of reminded when I lived and worked in South Africa after um, being a member of a church in London and I was in my 20s and I was utterly confronted with a completely different world and a different worldview and a, I don't know when you were talking I was just reminded of as a white western Christian church even though you know there are different denominations we have a very sanitized view of who we are and what life should be like and I'm noticing in myself that I think I I should have this life where I have everything a long life a healthy life and no violence and um, I should have the best and when that's just not true for the majority of the world I think both can be true because we live in a time where we have enormous, um, you know, horrible violence, and yet we have also very privileged, beautiful, peaceful lives. I have one, really. It can both be true at the same time, I think. Um, but like um, Tanya said, it's quite confronting to be open to that. Um, yeah, and my privilege. Thanks. Anyone else? No? Okay. Well, let's see what we can do with this. It is confronting. And I think we distance ourselves from the shock of the stories sometimes by either avoiding them or, or by sanitizing them in some kind of way or spiritualizing them. All of those are strategies to avoid being confronted with what's going on in some of these stories. And um, part of what I want to suggest is that our avoidance of these stories comes from an assumption that we are totally different from these kinds of people. And I think that's part of our problem. Because in fact, 
what we discover is that we're not totally different from these people in these stories. Um, anyway, let's see how we go. We talked about in the first um, week of this little series about how we approach Scripture. And something that we've been bumping into all the way along as we've been talking is about how there's not one static view of God in the Bible. If you, Who has been to at least one of the sessions so far? Um, most of you. Some of you just shrugging. I'll take that as a yes. Um, the fact that when you're dealing with a text that has been written over a long period of time by multiple people, um, you are dealing with people coming at um, the topic of God and of human experience from a number of different perspectives all the way along. And there's an evolving view of God that's taking shape in the story as well. And so rather than reading it as this flat text where I can slice into it any time because it's a, it's a book that sort of God has written with the giant divine hand, a small divine pen. Um, it's this it's this book that has taken shape within communities and the community of faith over a long period of time. And so when someone's telling the story at one point and then 500 years someone else is telling the story at another point, they don't all have exactly the same thing in mind uh, as they tell those stories. They might be speaking different languages even. Uh, by the time you get to the New Testament, the world has been reshaped a number of times by different um, languages and empires and, and philosophical movements and so on. And the emergence of the Jesus story reshapes it again. So um, what that means is that what we're dealing with here as a wisdom tradition is we are dealing with an invitation into a conversation about God. We are invited in to this long conversation about what we mean when we talk about God, about what we mean when we use God language, about the human experience as well, both of God and of life. And so um, in that sense then, rather than just going, all oh, right, well, that's what they did and they're the heroes of the story and that's what they said God said, so that must be what God is like, and then ending up with this um, problem that that brings to the surface uh, the invitation, I think, is to, in one sense, dive in and in one sense to take a step back, to kind of do both simultaneously, to dive into the story a little more than that and in doing so, then also being able to take a step back and say, how is the idea and the, how is belief in God being shaped and reshaped uh, through the trajectory of the story? Uh, because there is this evolving idea of what they think about when they talk about God, when they use God language. Um, does that make sense? Maybe? Okay. So I've said before, for example, that sometimes Old Testament authors are almost responding and even debating with one another about perspectives. And, and that is a very um, Jewish way of talking about God, to debate, to wrestle, to argue. Um, to say, I think God is like this, and to someone else and say, well, no, no, I think what God is saying is actually this, and that's part of the experience of a faith tradition. In modern um, Christianity, I think we've gotten very bad at thinking about 
our engagement in the faith conversation in those kinds of terms. And it's become much more, well, this is what the text says, and the text is the, the thing. Um, instead of being invited into the conversation uh, and into the wrestle that we're seeing even within the text itself. So that's one thing I want to say. Um, and so what, what spins out of that for me is I say, well, what if, what if what's going on in these stories offers us some really profound insight into the human condition, into human experience, into the way that humans so often conceive of God, and that as we read through the story, we find that what the Bible is doing is offering us these versions of God uh, and then finding that the God that we see revealed in Jesus keeps poking through in the story in interesting and curious ways all the way along. So we'll see how we go with that. Um, you know, if we think about if we think about ancient societies, if we think about ancient civilization, if we think about Game of Thrones for a moment. Is there any Game of Thrones watchers? A few. That's terrible behavior. Very disappointed in you all. And we'll have to have a talk about that afterwards and see what your theories are on the final season. I've just heard about it from other people, of course. Um, one of the things that if you, you know, when you watch shows like that, that are, you know, total fantasy. Of, there's dragons and there's, there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on. But it does, um, I think... attempt to portray what um, ancient peoples are often doing in their um, the competition that is being fought out in this kind of fierce competition for survival in the ancient world and how um, religion is, is used, is swung into that story and naturally becomes a part of it. So... You know, in the, in the ancient world, it's a harsh world. Perhaps it still is a harsh world, but we protect ourselves from it, and, and I'm grateful for that. I'm quite happy sitting here drinking iced tea and having chocolate and having lovely conversation with people like you. Uh, and I'm glad that none of you are stoning me for anything that I'm saying so far. Um, but there are parts of the world, even just in this last couple of weeks, who are still stoning people for various things that are deemed to be um, sinful. So, anyway, in the ancient world, fierce competition for survival uh, between groups. Um, you've got intense communities of belonging. That's your, way of, that's your way of getting by in the world. You've got your people. You stick with your people. You look out for each other. You protect each other. Um, and... Religion in that sense. And, and what in the, in the ancient Near East, where the story of the Bible emerges, we, we talked about this with the creation stories. Um, everybody's got a version of some kind of religious explanation for the world. Maybe it's lots of gods who all fight with one another. Uh, you're often, in, if you read through the Old Testament, you see these different gods keep poking their 
um, noses into the story. So you got who are some of the, the gods in the Old Testament keep popping up. Baal is one of the big ones. A few others. Yeah, I think I did. Molech was one. Molech's a particularly bad one. Asherah, uh, which often uh, had these kind of poles. You'll often hear the Asherah poles mentioned in the in the text. Um, they were almost the favourite. So often, even when all the other idols were kicked out, the, the Asherah poles were were left. Um, so these other, you know, this is this is the world. This is the ancient world in which these stories are being told. There are gods of regions and of and of nations, um, and when you went to battle, it wasn't just us fighting you. It was my gods more powerful than your god, unless I haven't kept my god happy, in which case you might beat me. Yeah, and you see that come through very much in in, in the Old Testament story. That these are ancient people being who aren't thinking like. 2019 New Zealanders sitting here <laughs> analysing the world. You know, they're, they're living thousands of years ago. This is the way they make sense of the world. There's, um, it would be, in, in a sense, unfair to expect them to suddenly see the world totally differently from the world that they live in. And so what we find is, um, Peter ends one of his you know, quotes is, God lets his children tell the story, um, which is in the sense that the story is from the perspective of these people trying to make sense of the world that they, that they live in. And... When you go to battle, you better have God on your side and, and have kept God happy. And um, You have this great showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Have we mentioned that so far in this series? I can't remember. But if you, I, I still vividly remember the comic book images from when I was a kid. Um, but you know, Elijah and the prophets of Baal and there's hundreds of them and just one of him and the nation essentially has been overrun by Baal worship and... Elijah challenges them to a to a showdown on the mount, and uh, they try and get Baal to call down fire from heaven, and they kill animals, and they march around, and they cut themselves, and they're trying to show how devoted they are, so that they can get God, their God, to turn up in some kind of way. And then Elijah has his little altar of stones. He doesn't. Just to show off a bit, he pours water all on. I always feel like it's such an unnecessary part of the story. I'm like, a fire's going to come down from heaven. I don't feel like, and you wouldn't believe it, it even burnt up the water. Um, I feel like the fire from heaven would be flash enough for me. But he wanted to add a little pizzazz, so he poured water all over it as well, just to prove that it had to be some serious fire. Um, but that's the kind of showdown you expect in some ways in, in the ancient world. Whose God is more powerful? And, and Elijah mocks them a little bit. Is your God, is he um, asleep? Has he drifted off? Not been paying attention? Is he on the toilet? I think is one of the questions. Um, and <laughs> you can see what's going on here is that have you, they're trying to keep their God as happy as possible. Now, the, the profound kind of insight in that story is perhaps not that then Elijah goes and slaughters all the prophets of Baal afterwards. Uh, the insight in the story is that he doesn't do anything. He doesn't kill anything. He doesn't sacrifice any blood. And he doesn't have to strive. He simply asks and, and God turns up. That's, that's the most profound insight in, this, in the story. Um, but this, this is the world in which these stories are written. Violent, 
And the gods are implicated in all of that violence. And so God becomes your warrior um, who will fight for you. And that's the way they tell the story. Now, fortunately, we no longer use the name of God to support our causes in that kind of way. But um, back then, they were so bad at it. Yeah, that was my sarcasm. Um, we do, right? We still use the name of God behind the causes that we care about um, to make ourselves right and other people wrong. Um, okay. So we'll say another couple of things and then we'll have a little break and then we'll come up with some strategies for how we might approach some of this um, more practically. Cool? Um, so I mentioned before that sometimes there's these little things poking their way through the story that are revolutionary and incredibly progressive for their time. And there are. Let's go back to the story of Abraham for a moment. And Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son Isaac, which seems like a ridiculous thing for God to ask of Abraham because Isaac is the promised child. And then God says, what I want you to do is take Isaac, your son, take him to Mount Moriah and, um, and sacrifice him there to me. And Abraham goes, all right. Seems to have very, very little problem with this, um, which tells you something about the time he lives in. That this is not some radical out of the blue request in fact, this is what the gods could demand of you at any time. This is what Molech was known for, one of the neighboring gods, um, for demanding your children to be sacrificed. Uh, and so this is not an unex... Un oh, that's a very chirpy little piano tune. Um, you know, this is not an unusual, in the sense, ancient request. What's unusual about the story is that when he gets to the top... Of the mountain, uh, God provides instead a ram, stops him from killing his son, and God provides the sacrifice, uh, which is, that's not how the ancient view of the gods worked at all. God never provides the thing that you need because you're supposed to be giving something to God. And in this story, God steps in and says, don't kill your son. I'm going to provide the sacrifice. And that's this kind of revolutionary, progressive movement forward in how they started to think about their God. It's not all of the movement forward that we want to see. It's not now that Abraham thinks about God in the same way that Jesus does, but it is a step forward in the way that Abraham thinks about God. Yeah? Um Think about uh, the way the prophets begin to emerge in the story and challenge the accepted norms of this is what God is like, this is what God expects, this is what God requires, this is what you should do. And the prophets begin to emerge and say, actually, perhaps we should, not perhaps, they're quite, they're much more forceful than me. I'd be the most polite ancient prophet and I'd, I'd sort of, I'd totter in somewhere and be like, I was just thinking, a suggestion. Just a suggestion, perhaps, what we might do. Have you ever thought about um, just maybe not killing all of the animals for the Lord? 
Um, that would be my way of delivering a prophecy, I think. Um, the, 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 the prophets of Israel were a little more forthcoming with their opinions than I. Um, but they, in fact, emerge as these voices challenging the tradition itself of Israel, whether it's challenging animal sacrifice and the tradition, whether it's challenging the way that they were treating the poor and the oppressed, whether it was challenging the way they were treating the foreigner and the other, uh, these prophets rise up. And again, don't solve everything for us, but they make more steps forward in the way that they're starting to talk about God. Uh, there's a beautiful story we mentioned uh, briefly a couple of weeks ago about Jonah, a few weeks ago, um, which is a hilarious tragedy, tragic comedy. Um, it's very kind of Shakespearean. I went to Hamlet at the Pop-Up Globe yesterday, which was fabulous and lots of violence. And, um, but, you know, Jonah, Jonah is, is this amazing tale of, of this, this prophet who is supposed to go and prophesy to these, to their enemies. The, you know, the people of Nineveh were known for their brutality. And so he doesn't want to. And he doesn't want to. Why does he not want to? Does anyone know? Other than, you know, hating them. The story of Jonah. God says you're gonna go and you're gonna go and prophesy to the Ninevites. Because he knows that God will forgive them. He knows that God will forgive them. He wanted them to die. And he wanted God to kill them. <laughs> um, and the story of Jonah is the story of him trying to escape having uh, his enemies forgiven. And eventually God leading him there anyway and him giving the worst prophecy in the history of prophecies. Uh, his one line, which is not repent, which is not turn, it's just simply everything's going to burn. Um, that's all he does. And everybody... Um, you know, repents and turns, including the animals. They all dress up in sackcloth and ashes. And it's, it's, it's a brilliant story. After, I mean, we even touched on being living in a whale for three days. But, um, and at the end of the story, Jonah, this is, this is the challenge to the people of Israel. Jonah still hasn't come to his senses. He's still not like, oh, now I see God that you're, you are good and you knew all along. He's pissed off <laughs> sitting out in the, <laughs> outside the city, Glum by himself, going, This is the worst. Exactly what I thought was going to happen happened. I hate my life. <laughs> End scene. And that's the end of the story. Um, it's a beautiful story because it's hilarious and tragic, but it confronts, it's so countercultural in the ancient world because it pushes against this desire to see our enemies punished and says, Perhaps there's something else going on here. Yeah, And so even though we've got this kind of one level of the story going along like this, we've got God and God is kind of the warrior king and we've got the people of Israel who keep fighting these battles. On another level, there's these subversive stories that keep getting told within the story uh, that say perhaps God is a little different than what you might expect. Perhaps his God is different from the way everybody else is talking about gods. Even their creation story, as we discussed a month ago, does that. It offers a different vision of God and of reality. Um, think of David. We go back to David, our hero. <coughs> uh, hero slash terrible person. Occasionally good person. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. 
apparently he's doing a great job building a glorious kingdom. And you'd, you'd think that's what God wants because the nation of Israel always talks about how awesome it is what, what David did. But when David gets towards the end of his life, he wants to build a temple of worship to God. And God says, sorry, too violent. Um, which you'd think on one level you'd be like, but I thought he was building a glorious kingdom for the Lord. Um, and it almost seems like he's, he's doing God's bidding all the way through that story. And yet when we get to this point in David's story, you realize there's, again, a subversive idea pops through here. You, you can't build this temple. You're a, you're a violent, violent man. Yeah? Okay. And then obviously we get to Jesus in the New Testament. And it seems like from as much work as historians have done, that Jesus is the first teacher to introduce the idea of love of enemies. It's this controversial, revolutionary idea that everybody would laugh out of town, except that this is one of the central messages of Jesus of Nazareth. Um... He's on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so what we're actually seeing is this progressive, evolving view of God. And the writer of one of John's letters says, no one has ever seen God. But God is found when we love one another. And, and so what you've got is this beautiful movement. That's my suggestion as, a, as one way of thinking about what's going on in the Bible. Does that make sense? <clears throat> okay. So we're going to do, we're going to have a short breather just to accumulate all of that information, integrate, and then um, what I'll do is perhaps say another couple of things uh, and then we'll have a little bit of discussion, maybe some questions. And I've got a few questions that might be helpful to us all when we engage in text like this. So a couple of minutes just to fill your tea, down another Easter egg, and then uh, we'll be back shortly. So um, you did come out to a night about violence, so if you're feeling, you know, the intensity, then it's all of our faults together. You'd like a summary? Yeah, I'd like to sort of clearly just say in one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> a one sentence summary of everything we just said. Have you got one? No, I was thinking. I almost feel like it. I mean, I've always looked at it as, his, as sort of an ancient you know, history, an ancient society that was violent. I mean, even Shakespeare's days over And that's what was happening all around them. And then all through the Old Testament, 
God's just shining through in some of those stories you said. You're shining through a light to say, I'm not like this, I'm not like that, and I'm not like that about women, and I'm not like that about your enemies, and I'm not like this. Yeah. That's it. Yes. If um, if there was, <laughs> I should have got that on the microphone, eh? Ah. <laughs> yeah. That that's that's how I that's how I read the story. Absolutely. Um. Yeah. Steve. Yes. Oh, let's we we'll use the microphone. Thank you. Um. So I. 100% agree and and no it was an and I knew you'd say but and I don't think we're any less violent than we were oh no we don't we certainly don't understand God but but the thing that we I should th- I think we're, we're at least as violent possibly worse we've we've no, we are. We, we've found some great ways to kill people. You know, particularly in the last hundred years, there's some, been some great science in that area. Um, and, and the scale of, of violence in the last century is spectacular. And, and I, I look down sort of the barrel of history way down to sort of Cain and Abel and go, that was pretty mild. <laughs> It was ridiculously mild compared with all of the genocide that's happened in the last hundred years. So one of so one of the things that I'd um, suggest reasons why we should continue to read these stories because with that kind of conclusion, if we were to say, well, okay, God is not violent, and we don't want to see God that way, right? I just won't bother reading that stuff then. I think. The, the other side of that is what you're talking about, which is to recognise that, in fact, we are the same fundamental human creatures. Um, we are clothed in modern clothes with technology and um, everything that, that we've got to make ourselves feel more civilised. Uh, and some of us are, perhaps. You know, we're not all personally violent all the time. And yet, we are the same kind of fundamental human creature as what we're talking about in these stories. And what we find is we are tempted, not just individually, and I think our tendency when we read Scripture is to always read it as an individual because that's a Western way of thinking about it. But there's communal stories being being told here. And when we think about ourselves as a communal people, we recognise, in fact, we are still violent. We, in fact, have found remarkable ways to be violent toward one another. We're now at the point, for the first time in human history, uh, whereby we can destroy the entire planet in minutes if the wrong people get offended by the wrong people. Luckily, we've got great stable um, leaders in charge of all of those things. <laughs> um, right, so that's a, that's a profound level of capability for, for violence. Um, that we now have. And so one of the reasons I think that we should continue to read these stories is because what we find hidden in these stories and some insights about the human condition, the human experience, the way that we, the way that we tend to use um, 
then God and our religion as well to, to back up our violence and justify our violence and our othering and our exclusion and all of those things that, that we do and that we participate in. Yes, Katarina. And <laughs> um, I'm just reminded of, you know, as, as you know, I sort of teach mindful self-compassion. We talk about the yin and the yang of compassion. I think, you know, it's not all about iced tea and lollies and we can have the luxury of sitting here and having a discussion, but we also, you know, I mean, when we talk about violence, you know, like we talk about war and weapons of mass, de mass destruction, but um, I think we're also called upon to stand up against what's wrong in the world. And be strong in that. Um, and that's where I think that where the wisdom comes. Where do I, you know, it's not all about embracing everybody with forgiving love when there is injustice and um, exclusion uh, and poverty and all sorts of things in our daily lives. Um, and decisions are not always easy because bad things happen to us and how do we respond with strength and not just um, it's not all sweet and soft on a cloud like it can seem like that when we sit amongst each other and discuss it freely yeah um, I think these conversations Sound, look and sound very different depending on the context that they're had in, for sure. And so what can seem like a very abstract conversation about violence in one room, change the location and the context, um, not just the time, but right now in the world, and we'll find that this takes shape in very real, tangible, concrete ways, and you, have to, you can't just wrestle with um, a hypothetical response to what to do with evil or what to do with how we respond to, to violence as well. Um, but, you know, I, I even think about the level of domestic violence that we face even within our own nation. And that even with the violence that's all out there, done over there, it's also done, it's also present here uh, and among us and among our communities and among our people. And um, that's why, I, you know, what, that's one of the reasons other than I just think it's the theologically right move, but the way in which uh, Christian patriarchy has entrenched harmful power dynamics between men and women that have meant that some women have suffered uh, violence that they should not have because they've been taught that that's their duty to submit under God. Um, and so that's, you know, we, we have to, I think, engage with our tradition, with our story, with our sacred text, with what we believe about God and what we believe about each other and the way it reshapes profoundly how we actually genuinely live in the world and with one another and what that means we need to confront and challenge and that love sometimes looks like justice. Yeah. Any other thoughts that are coming out of this? Linda. I mean, violence is about power, really, isn't it? All violence stems from someone's need 
to be powerful. So when you talk about patriarchy, it's it's all power dyna- dynamics. And so maybe our task, like, it's hard for us because we don't, we're not, I'm not sitting at home waiting for a, you know, tank to roll down the street and blow my house to pieces. So what does violence mean in our context? Because we say, we just feel so far removed. But it's about power, isn't it? So it's like if we can somehow tear down that need for power over, then perhaps we've got a you know, chance. I think about what's happening right now with Israel Fellow and his language around hell, and that's violent. So the people who are the object of his wrath are feeling, are thinking God is a God of violence. So, you know, and that's, that's now, that's us, that's our, the world that we're in, as opposed to the ones with a tank rolling down the, the street. So I'm like, we just have to somehow dismantle this power thing that is very prevalent in the church. Yes. Um, and this is one of, I think, one of the insights of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, for Jesus is this, this challenge that the worst case end of the spectrum, you know, the, the, the terrible things that we see are in fact somehow an extension of other things that we all wrestle with internally. So he says, well, you know, it's not just don't murder, it's actually let's, let's have a conversation about your heart and the way you see other people because that's where that violence comes from. Um, and so there's that, there's, and, and yeah, the, the power over dynamic. And this is a part of what's so confusing about Jesus as, as Messiah because he doesn't come like David. He doesn't raise up an army. He, um, he undoes that way of seeing power. In fact, he shows God's power to be most fully displayed in sacrificial love rather than and taking up power over and some kind of dominance. Um, yeah. Other thoughts? Yes. Um, how do you think we um, need to like interpret passages like Ephesians 6 that put on the whole armour of God and that we're in this battle? Because I think I was very much brought up with this idea. And yeah. Yes, the armour of God, which is battle language, isn't it? Now, interestingly, when we look at what the... Um, this, there's a couple of things perhaps we could say about that. One is, I think Paul's got a, a wonderful subversion of battle imagery there um, because we have the... Um, I'm trying to remember what the armour of God now is. I could have told you this when I was seven. <laughs> The belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. There's something of peace, isn't there? Isn't there? Um, and so it's this taking of this battle imagery and and taking it and and using that now as language for a different way of um, achieving victory in the world, if you like. And that is again, it's it's like Jesus taking, I think, the the language of Messiah and King. And kingdom, and flipping it upside down, 
so that everything's always the wrong way around. Um, Jesus keeps talking about a kingdom, but his kingdom is all, all wonky. Um, and I think Paul does a similar kind of thing with, with the armor of God, which is uses this imagery that's familiar in the first century of, of the battle and of armor, but then the things he talks about are not things that you use to wage violence, but instead to bring peace and reconciliation. Um, and then the scope of the whole book of Ephesians is, because um, it's, it's a, he uses this kind of spiritual battle kind of imagery right throughout the whole letter. Um, but the way he builds his argument is that the way you um, win the spiritual battle is through the building of uh, strong family, strong community, and loving relationships. Uh, that's why you have the the household, you know, how do we relate to one another? How do husband and wife relate to one another? How do we negotiate these relationships? The whole thing is built around how our relationships one another with one another become the way in which we um, overcome evil in the world. Um, so for me, that's the language of spiritual battle that Paul uses in, in Ephesians. Yes. Any other thoughts, comments, questions, ideas? Craig. I'm just um, adding on and, adding on to what Linda said um, about power. And I just had a thought around that, that power is, um, sorry, I'm trying to get it. Oh, congruent here. Uh, power is actually uh, a fear-based emotion and it's fear of loss. So um, when you think about that and then Jesus says to the rich man, sell your possessions and follow me, that's the way of the kingdom of God, harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of God, um, that puts it in a lot of context with a lot of war and stuff. And also, you know, position of um, woman or uh, property, country, so if you let go of that, it, it ties in with a lot of that spiritual uh, and uh, belief in peace. Yeah. Cool. It's good. There is, um, yes, often we use the power to to gain and to protect what we have. Um to protect what we have and to grow what we have usually is the way we use power, even if what we're growing is just our power. Yeah. Anyone else? All right. Um, we won't we won't drag out our violence for too long. Yes. <laughs> when I read them, what am I going to do with the Old Testament stories when I read them to Rufus? Um, it's a great question. I think this is one of the real, in fact, how we talk about God and, and the Bible to children and young people is, I think, one of the big challenges for the church of the 21st century. Um, having recognized that maybe this isn't a book that's just floated down from the sky that we can pluck versus. From maybe there's maybe it's more complex than that. Um, in some ways, you recognize, you know, the the Jewish tradition is perhaps more helpful in the way that they engage with scripture and the way that they have to um, get to a certain age before they're even able to read certain 
books, um, for example, because they recognize that not all of the Bible is, is kids' stories. Um, in fact, a lot of it is, is probably not. Um, we were at a friend's place and, you know, and, and their little boy said, you know, read me a story, read me the story about Uncle Noah, you know. And I'm like, gosh, yeah. I, get, I, I mean, I was like that. And, and yet, I was a bit uncomfortable. Um, so Hannah read it. Uh, what that means for how I will, will talk to, to Rufus about it, I think it's something I'm going to have to figure out. Some of, them, some of it I think, hey, this is probably not what I'm going to start him on. <laughs> I'm not going to start him with, this is what God is like. Here, let's read these stories of, of, of violent warfare in, in the Old Testament. I think the story spins out from Jesus. So the way in my mind, I mean, this is all theory, obviously, because I'm not, not reading him a lot of Bible stories yet. Eight, week, eight weeks in, it's a bit early. Um, but but as to, as to centre, this this, Hannah might have a different answer to this. We probably haven't had this thorough conversation yet. Um, but if I was to talk about God and the Bible with, with Rufus, it centres around what kind of God we see in Jesus. And then other stories become, look at the way people talk about God. And how does that, if this is the way we think about God based on Jesus, then what does that tell us about these other stories and what's going on in them? Now, obviously, that's probably not going to be a three-year-old conversation. Um, But I hope that's the kind of conversation I could have with Rufus as he grows. But we'll see. He might not care about it. I'm not being remotely interested. Um, but I don't think I'll be sitting down and starting with the, the book of um, Joshua. Uh, here's here's a few. Yes, Peter. You don't need the microphone. Oh. Yeah, look, um, so the question is, what do we do with the judgment of God? What place does that have? Yeah. So the, the trajectory, now this, uh, yeah, we'll, make, we'll definitely make this our last um, thing before dinner. And it's a big conversation is what does it look like when God has to say no? And what, what I think this isn't is God's just got a big list of things that he doesn't like, and if you do anything on that list, then he's like, ah, that's it, you're done. Um, but that we do participate in the world in destructive and dehumanizing ways. We 
we do, we can, we're capable of acting in ways that are violent, that are destructive, that are dehumanizing, that will crush others, that will use our power over others. And at some point, um, what the story seems to be saying is that, that God says no to that because if that is allowed to continue unrestrained, it will destroy everything good that God has made. And so the language of judgment is what comes into the story to to try and wrestle with how God does that. And like the other topics, I actually think there's an ongoing conversation in Scripture about what it means to say that God judges. So I don't think every part of the text has exactly the same point of view on this. I think it's this... I think it's this invitation that we're invited into that's, I think, a conversation about God. And we also find that we have that conversation as a society. What, where's the place for restorative justice versus retributive justice, for example? How do we think about um, taking someone who's committed a violence? Are they redeemable? What do we do with that? Do we actually provide support or do we simply lock them up and throw away the key? We have those same conversations now that are in some ways related to also the kind of questions we might have for the way in which God's judgment works. Um, ultimately, the best theological grappling with God's judgment that, that I see is the sense of God uh, at times leaving people to the consequences of their actions. And so... Um, I find that to be a helpful theological definition even of, of what is meant sometimes by God's wrath. Um, many scholars would say God's wrath best interpreted is, is when God allows people to experience the consequences of their actions. Uh, and so um, there's probably a bigger conversation we could have about that. But ultimately, my reading of Jesus says that what God is always interested in ultimately is reconciliation. So that judgment is not simply punitive, but judgment also always takes place for the purpose of um, healing, redemption, and reconciliation. That is God's goal always. And so if there is anything that God has to do in order to stop violence, destruction, and dehumanization, it is with the goal of uh, reconciliation, redemption, and a putting of things back together again. Um, so that's that's the way I read it, but there's probably more to be said we could say about that. Perhaps we'll have to add another um, session sometime. Um, okay, can I leave you with a few questions that you could ask of, of a passage if you were going to read it? Yeah? Um, as with all of the stories in the Bible, a helpful question to ask, why do you think they're telling the story? <laughs> um which might seem like a really obvious question, but it's sometimes one that we, we don't stop and just ask ourselves to begin with. Why, why are they telling this story? How are they using the name of God? Because I think some of those stories, Peter, I think they actually misused the name of God. That's, that's the way I read some of them. But that's you know an ongoing discussion we could talk about more. So how are they using the name of God? And then the flip question is, how do I use the name of God? And that invites me into the story as well. Um, this is what, in fact, is meant by thou shalt not use, um, you know, take the Lord's name in vain, one of the Ten Commandments, which I remember when I accidentally said Jesus Christ at primary school, you know, um, because all my friends were saying it. And then I felt so bad because I had used the Lord's name in vain. Um, 
Can you imagine a, a, a terrified Pentecostal kid accidentally using Jesus Christ in the wrong context? Um, but using the Lord's name in vain is attributing things to God that are in fact not what God has said. That's, that's what's supposed to be captured in that. Right. So I find it interesting when I read those stories, how are they using the name of God? How do I use the name of God? Uh, can I learn something about myself here? What does the story tell us about the way they saw God? And how does Jesus help me make sense of that? And how do I see God? Um, what I'm going to do and what I have been doing is posting up some blogs that come out of formation that capture some of the basic, uh, the an outline of the things we've been discussing. So on the Edge Kingsland website, uh, there's a blog page and down the left runs our Sunday morning blogs, but on the right you'll see some of the blogs from formation. So I'll put these questions in there for you. So if you find those helpful questions to think about when you read the text. Um, but why are they telling the stories? How do they use the name of God? How do I use the name of God? What do they believe about God? What do I believe about God? These, these, this is seeing this text as a wisdom tradition invites us into that conversation. I think in helpful, challenging, provocative, stimulating ways. Um, cool. Okay, we're going to have some curry. So um, let me pray. God, thank you for being present in our conversation in our wrestling with who you are and what you're like and our questions and answers. The fact we don't have all the answers. In our desire to know you and what you're like and what that means for us and for how we're to live. Would you help us to be a community of people who find our way together in that conversation, in that journey? as we read scripture and these sacred stories, as we wrestle with what it means to be a Jesus follower and what really does lie at the heart of things, what you are like. And would we in that place somehow find some liberation and some transformation of ourselves and of others? And bless this curry as we eat it, amen. All right. Thanks, everyone. Big, big stuff, eh? Um, big stuff. Lisa gave us a good summary, so we're going to tuck that away, take it with us. Um, we've got dinner together, which is cool. Other than that, please continue. The, if this was an easy, solvable, well, if, 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 you know, if we could just wrap all this up in a bow, it would have been done. So the journey is actually the thing. It's in the, it's in the wrestle, it's in the journey, in the conversation that we find our way forward and hopefully bump into God in that. Cool? All right. Good one.